previously on the True Joy podcast. We've been following the case of Missing Joy, but we're also digging into the true crime obsession we seem to have as a culture. So how many murder podcasts have you listened to? The deeper I got into this, with every clue that's been uncovered, I realized all the ways we've gotten this wrong. How we stood by, completely unaware of the slow and callous death of joy and hope. I mean... Did I even know joy before, if it was so easy to miss it being gone? The sight of this that none of us saw coming was being knee-deep in an investigation of what happened to joy in the first place. As I continued to survey this scene, I see chaos and blame. I see sadness and regret. I see loss. I see grief. I literally see comparison, anxiety, and shame. Our suspects are many, but I can't ignore the truth that I'm one of them. Joy and TMSG in Roseville. This is the True Joy Podcast, a story of joy told each episode. I'm Jill Mansfield. Back in 2007, I wrote a blog post that examined how we view the lives of celebrities and the spectacle of it all. I compared the public response to recent events surrounding a particular celebrity walking through what we believe to be a mental breakdown in the long-ago horrors of the Roman gladiator battles and the crowds that cheered them on. We had been watching this celebrity make mistakes, get divorced, lose custody of her children, and shave her head from a very public stage. You couldn't even count the number of articles and think pieces written during that time, ripping her to shreds, barely remembering that she was an actual human being. It was terrible. And all I could think about was the line from Ridley Scott's Gladiator where Maximus yells out to the crowd, Are ye not entertained? While I would modify parts of my comparison if I wrote that same piece today, I don't think we as a culture are any less fascinated by bloody battles, mistakes, and meltdowns. Not much has changed. I mean, aren't we still entertained by the suffering and shame of others? Even if we've changed the way we consume it, instead of people coming from miles around to the Colosseum, for the entertainment of death, violence, and humiliation, people sit at home with computers, TVs, and mobile devices waiting for the latest scandal, murder, or someone's mistake, tragedy, or trauma to be plastered all over the internet. Are ye not entertained? If we're going to question shame as a suspect in the disappearance of joy in our lives and in our world, there seems to be two different perspectives we need to examine. And I have to tell you, neither one is pleasant. Shame is nothing new. Since the dawn of time in Adam and Eve, shame has been a presence in our cultures and in our own individual stories. History gives us insight into how early societies were formed, how people banded together to survive. For these early societies to function properly, everyone had to pull their own weight and play by the rules. Anyone who didn't was punished. And humans have a fascinating track record of taking it way too far. From being voted off the island, tar and feathering, to the pillory in the town square, 
your sins on display for all to see. Public shaming has always been an event that draws a crowd. I don't know if we should or can describe these things as getting worse over the years, but it definitely feels like it. These days, you don't even have to leave your house to hurl shame onto someone else. You just need their Instagram or Twitter handle. But this brings me back to a question I asked in a previous episode when discussing the true crime cases and murder podcasts. Do I remember that these aren't just stories? That real lives are involved and affected? In the HBO documentary, 15 Minutes of Shame, Dr. Helen Wang, a neuroscientist and psychologist, explains how we perceive others in the online space. She says, when someone is just a name on a screen with some of their text, as well as a stranger you've never met, that is not enough information for our human brains to fully perceive them as a human. I guess that starts to answer my question. But what does that mean for how we view shame and how we view ourselves? Over a decade ago, the world took notice as Brene Brown taught us about the power of vulnerability, connection, and wholehearted living. A year later, in another TED Talk, she revisited the research that started her vulnerability journey in the first place, the topic of shame, and how it applies to how we connect with others. Shame and fear unravel connection letting us believe that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy. Because while guilt says, I did something bad, shame says, I am bad. I was 18 and through just one semester of college when I found out I was pregnant. I was a really good kid whose identity was built on the shaky ground of people-pleasing and perfectionism. I didn't ask for the top floor pedestal view, but the more I think about it, I'm not sure I did anything to stop it from happening either. It's all I knew. Until that moment when every bit of it came crashing down around me. The fall was far and the impact was painful. But I always say that the loneliness was worse. So what do you do when everything falls apart? You lose your community and nothing in your life remains the same? Well, if you're me and a textbook example of dealing with shame, you disconnect. You pretend, and you try to control any part of your life that you possibly can. There is so much about that time I don't remember. Shame affected every part of my life, so nothing felt safe. I wouldn't even let myself pray. It felt like even God was off limits because I messed everything up. I'm sad for the Jill that spent so many years living half-heartedly. In avoiding pain and loss, I also avoided true joy true gratitude, and a real connection with the people I loved. And it would take years before I could know any different. In future episodes, we get to hear from people who inspired me or helped me see what wholehearted living looked like. And while I'm sad for the years that I didn't fully engage, I'm also grateful for what I learned. I'm grateful for the story that shame told me, the lesson it taught. In his book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Kurt Thompson writes, To effectively enter into the healing of shame requires us to know the place it holds in our story as a human race. And that requires us to know which story, exactly, we believe we are living in. Within this research and learning, I was reminded over and over again why our stories matter. 
We tell stories not just to describe what we're doing, but to make sense of our past and what we've done. I would also argue that our stories help us to learn from one another. And when we let them, I believe our stories can help make the world a better place. We started this episode in a coliseum of shame, where horrific battles of humiliation and suffering are fought. A battle where shame fights dirty and tries to tell a story of loss and defeat, and it's full of lies. It's easy to look at the world around us and feel defeated. It's tempting to retreat, hide, and disengage because shame and fear tell us that's all that's left. In a speech that we've heard quoted in TED Talks, commercials, and at sporting events, Theodore Roosevelt speaks out against critics and cynics who look down on anyone trying to make the world a better place. Dubbed the man in the arena, the speech given to students and officers in France says, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or whether doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows, in the end, the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I don't care how cheesy it sounds. If the past two years have taught me anything, it's that I'd rather be in the arena battle trying to do good in this world than staying scared, doing nothing, or causing harm in the Colosseum of shame. And so I keep pressing forward, looking for and fighting for joy, hoping it helps. So here's today's briefing. We've been hot on the trail of joy, but we keep getting tangled up in the webs of shame. To borrow ideas from Brene Brown, Kurt Thompson, the AA Handbook, and even Theodore Roosevelt, I guess, we are only as sick as the secrets we keep, and shame is committed to keeping us sick. Shame is an epidemic in our culture that grows in an atmosphere of secrecy, silence, and judgment. But it also seems to thrive as we ignore and deflect our own shame and heap it onto someone else. The evidence has shown us that empathy is the antidote of shame, and it's in vulnerability and stepping into the arena that we find connection to one another and see our true selves and our true stories. It's also where we're going to find the joy we've been missing. It's a huge piece of the puzzle but we've stumbled on something bigger. We set out to take down the crime ring of shame, 
but discovered it's just a cog in a bigger machine. It's more sinister than we thought, and we're stuck in a deceptive web of lies where fear reigns. See you in two weeks. The True Joy Podcast is produced by Sarah Whitehead, Dina Flores, and me. Tracy Eldridge is our Joy Promotions Manager. The man I'm married to is our Production and Operations Manager. Paisley the Dog is our Editorial Advisor. Editing, done by me. Fact-checking, loosely done by me. A special thanks to my daughters, Paige and Abby, my family and friends, and the Ridiculous Joy community, who are also my family and friends. True Joy Podcast is a production of Ridiculous Joy and TMSG Roseville. And I'm out.